Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Majel Connery to the show. Majel is a vocalist, composer, and former musicologist, having received an A.B. in music composition from Princeton and a Ph.D. in musicology from the University of Chicago. After taking an assistant professorship in musicology at UC Berkeley for a couple years, Majel pivoted and decided to pursue a career as a performer full-time. Her music is defined as electro-art dream pop with repressed classical influences, and she has received rave reviews from institutions like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, among many others. A resident of Rockaway Beach, New York, she just finished a national tour with her newest musical collaboration, Sky Creature. She co-founded and ran the experimental Chicago-based opera company called Opera Cabal for 11 years. She's written songs for the hit podcast Radiolab. She runs a podcast called EQ, Straight Talk Between Musicians. Really, she's got a lot of cool things going on. But what's most important to mention for our purposes here is that she and I used to perform in plays together back in high school in Omaha, Nebraska. She is an old friend and an extraordinary artist, and I'm thrilled to reconnect with her now Welcome to the show, Majel. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> I, had to re- I had to like repress a big chuckle when you said we used to perform together. I was like, right, we did. Scapino. <laughs> Do you remember Scapino? Oh yeah, running around the audience with uh, like a Nerf sausage. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, Majel, it's such a joy to get to hear your voice and to chat with you. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with you about what's been going on with you for the last, God, 20 plus years. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, you know, we knew each other as teenagers and now it's, we're not teenagers anymore, Majel. Yeah. This is a blast from the past. Like I have almost never encountered before. Like this is almost, we are in fact childhood friends. We are not adult friends, but we get to have an adult conversation right now, which is really exciting. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being a part of this, but first I want to know, tell me about performing live. And, and I have to ask two questions. One is you mentioned on your website that Sky Creature, which is your partnership with Matt Walsh of The Forms is his band that he came out yes. of before. This is what you refer to as your spiritual child. So obviously, in a situation like this, I want to hear you expand upon that. And then two, I just want to know what it's like being out live again. And, and actually, an addendum to that, is this the first time you've taken Sky Creature out in front of a live audience? Yeah, great, great questions. So to answer the latter, we were one of these bands that came together just before the pandemic. And then the whole world came crashing down Mm. upon us. And a lot of musicians suffered in the same way that, you know, actors and artists of all disciplines suffered during the pandemic. We were just crushed by this because we had a tour set up uh, in the spring of 2019. It's hard to remember just exactly how many years have been lost. Yeah, I I feel you there, man. Um, but we, we had this tour all planned out, which obviously never happened, but what ended up occurring in this interim incubation was that the band just got better, got bigger. It got stronger. It got wilder, weirder, more beastly. We clarified 
who we were in a way that I think had we come out in 2019, we would have been good, but it would have taken us years from that point to develop into what we were going to become. And instead, now we get to come right out the gate breathing fire. Like we know exactly who we are and what we want to be. I mean, I, I say that a little bit strongly. <laughs> like We still have some questions to clarify, but um, the pandemic ended up inadvertently being an investment period for us in like what the band would actually look and sound like. And, you know, from a branding perspective as well. We squeezed out a few little minor shows um, at various points. We did a big show in a rainstorm on Matt Walsh's porch in Rockaway Beach um, mm-hmm. in the middle of the winter of 2020, which was actually a, just kind of a miraculous, wonderful experience with people like dancing in the streets in the middle mm-hmm. of the winter. And we did one or two very isolated, very invite-only shows inside of uh, Matt's studio. He's also a recording engineer, and he has a studio in Rockaway Beach. So we did do a couple small protected shows. But this tour was really the first time that we went outside of Rockaway, which is our home base, and out into the wider world and just said, here's what we got. What do you think? To a group of people who had never seen us before. And COVID COVID has made people fretful and fearful in a way that they never were at a live show. Like maybe, maybe the immunosuppressed have always had this feeling in, in the presence of live people who are like disease carrying organisms. Mm. But now everyone has this innate fear. So part of what we're trying to do when we go into a live show, and this goes for anyone who's a performer, is not only give them the show of their lives because some of them haven't seen a show in two years, but also help them overcome any fear that they that they feel latently. So it's a really big ask of us. We have to put 378,000% energy out into the room. And uh, that has been a challenge, but it's been really cool. And it means that after every show, we always have people coming up to us and saying, first of all, I haven't seen a show in two and a half years. Second of all, this is one of the most impactful things that I've seen recently at all, period. And and that has just been elating. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And so tell me yeah. more about spiritual child. Like when you say spiritual child, what makes this, I mean, I can see your enthusiasm. I, I can feel the excitement. I, But what makes it more than just a, an exciting project for you? Yeah, well, for one thing, Matt and I have actually known each other since we were kids. Um, Mm. The first time I ever stood in front of a microphone in a recording studio, Matt was the engineer on the other side. Oh, my gosh. He was coaching me, trying to get sounds out of me that that I didn't even know I had. Was this in Nebraska or did you live somewhere prior to when I knew you? you? uh, This was, I think, when I was 22. Um, and it was in New York City um, in a, a studio in, in Ridgewood. I sort of came on this recording session in a roundabout way, but basically someone who knew Matt Walsh invited me to sing on a record. And Matt always saw something in me that I didn't even think was there. And he saw it 20 years ago and continued to see it for the last 20 years. Mm. And he always had in his mind that somehow we would work together, which to me, was totally nuts Hmm. because I am a person who orbits very avant-garde circles in music. (laughs) Like (laughs) I do really weird stuff. Matt is a rock musician. He engineers and produces rock records. He's in a rock band. 
there's really no, like in the Venn diagram of me and him, there's no overlap. We're just two circles. Hmm. So it felt strange to me that Matt in his mind had this very long game pursuit (laughs) that like one day this, this woman who has this voice that has always been special to him for reasons I can't even articulate Hmm. one day we would work together. Um, So I think part of the reason we use the word spirituality is that there's like, there's actually like a leap of faith on his part that undergirds the genesis of the entire band, which is the sense 20 years in the past that like something will come to fruition between these two people. So that is, that's part of what's really special. But the, the other thing that feels like a spiritual aspect, I guess, is that on the surface, Matt and I shouldn't be able to work together because our tool sets are so different. It's like he's working with, you know, sculpture and clay and I'm working with like wood and floorboards or something. It's like, (laughs) how do you get these two things to cooperate? And it's another leap of faith to imagine that someone who is trained in opera could plausibly collaborate with someone who is a straight ahead rock musician. But that was always Matt's vision. And he just kind of wore me down until I finally started to see it too. And what we have now is a synergistic kind of like bond of faith that this thing that doesn't seem to make sense at all and often doesn't make sense to the outside world makes sense to us. The the final reason I would give is that Matt and I have both discovered something really critical not just to our relationship, not just to the band, but to life in the process of working together. And this, I think, will probably open up a whole conversation about other things. But that discovery is, it's a, it's a truism. It's something that you're told over and over and over, but which is very hard to subscribe to until you actually feel it for yourself. And that is that if you are doing the thing that you wish more than anything to do in the entire world, it does not matter what your success is. It does not matter who you reach. It does not matter the level of applause or the number of likes or streams. Matt and I have reached a level of contentment with making music that I have experienced at no other time in my life. And we're at the very beginning of this band. We have no idea what measure of success we will run into. It might be very small, but it doesn't matter because he and I both have this bond over knowing that we're doing what we were built to do. And the satisfaction of that is literally something I've never felt. Oh, well, I guess the podcast is over. Great job. You did it. Uh, <laughs> no, how are we going to fill 50 more minutes? I'm not sure. Uh, no, that's wonderful, Major. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to hear that. And what a beautiful jumping off point. So naturally, as we would have such uh, an exquisite synthesis of, of your spiritual perspective and artistic perspective, I would ask you about breakfast. So yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Okay, well, don't don't feel sorry for me, Nick. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I can't wait to find out. I am a very odd eater. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, like on a level of oddity that maybe you haven't seen before. First of all, I'm super into trying to go to the gym first thing fasted. So I basically don't eat breakfast. Okay. But I do have copious amounts of coffee, like way more than is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> I re- really enjoy that. And then I came home and I had two enormous scoops of peanut butter. Oh, that now more. that is not weird at all to me. You have found 
Uh, you have found another acolyte of the jar of peanut butter out of the fridge, scoop it in, get the protein, get the nutrients, get what you need and move on with your day. That yeah. is absolutely something I operate on. Uh, yeah. No doubt about it. So there, there you, I understand you very well. So you're a, you're a five cups of coffee workout yeah. on an empty stomach. Yeah. yeah. And then two, two dollops of peanut butter directly into the mouth and then yeah. off to make music. Yeah, and that and that'll last me till like six p.m. Oh I mean, the, my goodness! The efficiency. You're the efficiency wasting away. <laughs> You're all apparently have, all wasting have to wash away. Is a is is a cup and a and a spoon. Those are the only things I have to wash. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, wow. Major. <laughs> uh, it sounds very exciting. Genuinely sounds exciting. I actually do connect with that. Uh, not to that extreme. Um, my wife is in food. She's a food photographer. And so I, I, I eat infinitely better than I've ever deserved to eat. I've wow. never treated myself so well. Wow. But I am by nature more along your lines. I'm more of a go a long time without eating and shove whatever's easiest into my mouth. Well, that is a lovely insight into your, uh, <laughs> it, you know what it is? It just shows your intensity for work to me. That's what it screams. It screams that you just yeah. want to, you want to get right to it. You got to get the working That's, out thing out of the yeah. way and you want to get right to work. There, I'm just very clear on what matters right now. <laughs> oh, so good. Well, let, tell me how you got there. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, so what I know of your podcast, I think that I fall in line with the vast majority of your guests in saying that, like, you know, I got dragged to church as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I was never big on belief as a kid in the sense of following rote principles or believing things that seemed somewhat absurd. And we could talk about that. Sure. But what I did believe as a child was that music was a portal to God. <laughs> mm. And I would spend most of the time in church trying not to cry because I felt myself so moved to such extreme places by music. Mm. And it has remained for me, not just like the frame within which ritual or Christianity or considerations of spirituality circulate, it is like, it's the substance. It's the gateway. And I still conceive of my music in terms of the kind of wonder that I felt as a kid when God was revealed through music. Do you have memories of your first experiences of what form that music took? Was it acapella singing? Was it a choir? Was it a, was it someone with a guitar? Was it just the kind of ritualistic songs of the mass? Um, it was songs that would be part of the offertory or, or the songs sung during communion. I remember very clearly sitting in pews as a choir would sing. Although I also grew up cantering in the church with mm. my mom playing piano. And I still do this um, whenever I'm Back in Omaha, where you and I grew up, um, my mom and I always play a couple masses. You will still go to mass with your mother? Yeah, absolutely. And, and can I ask, is your father still alive? Yeah. Um, my parents live in different cities. Oh, okay. Still together, still married, but they were drawn in different places. But uh, we grew up as my dad is a Catholic and my mom was a Lutheran, but because being Lutheran meant that she couldn't participate in the mass, which was super weird for her. She converted to Catholicism when I was a kid. 
And wow. I and my two brothers were were taken to church um, every Sunday. As I was saying, music is foundational to my experience of a God in the world. And as a super young kid, that experience took place in the pews where I would struggle even to sing at all because I was so moved that I would like have a frog in my throat. Wow. wow. <laughs> and like be trying to hide my tear-stained face both from my family and from the other people in the church because it seemed really weird and like not called for. But I I couldn't help it. I just found these hymns, even some of the tackiest ones, like hmm. Be Not Afraid or like On Eagle's Wings. Oh, I mean, on I Eagle's just, like, Wings, sure. Oh, damn. Like those things just <laughs> rent my heart yeah. in two and they still do. Yeah. And then... I started to canter when I was a teenager and I felt I felt more awkward in that role because you really become like part of the spiritual leadership of the church at that point. You are standing up there as a representative of the church itself and people are looking at you and comporting themselves in a way that you know matches what you're doing. So you really have to like you have to model the sort of spirituality that I think is expected of, of people in those roles. I then went on to become the music director of the largest Episcopal church in the Archdiocese of Chicago. And I was, I was there at the church in a moment where they were struggling with uh, the sudden departure of a, of a musical uh, director. And I just went to them and I said, you know, I don't have any background in choral leadership. I do not know how to conduct, but I can totally do this. I know I can for as long as you need me to. And so for the next like two, two and a half years off and on, I was both the director of choral activities for two adult choirs and one uh, treble choir for children. And I was also a section leader, paid section leader on and off. Wow. And so just to clarify, this is post Princeton. You, you've ended up in Chicago mm -hmm. for um, getting your, you're getting your, yeah, grad school. You're going to get your doctorate from the University of Chicago. So you've, you've had these revelations as a young child of what music means to you. During that time, while you're cantering, and of course I don't know this, you and I are doing plays together, but you have this whole musical life that is the bigger part of your artistic expression than the plays that I was doing with you. Yeah. And you go to Princeton, then you end up in Chicago. You're still engaged with the church in this way through music. And I have to say, I'm really interested in understanding what it means to you to, you don't reject the church, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, you're willing to, to take leadership roles in this. Was there ever yeah. any, was there ever any, um, struggle, internal struggle uh, at that? Did you balk at maybe something you saw as hypocritical and yet at the same time you're happy to devote and give your heart to this project? Yeah, I think that a really, really firm um, presence of skepticism has always informed my system of belief. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, this just doesn't make any sense. The, the the existence of a hell does not make any sense to me. The the idea of 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 punishment, although I was very conscious of sin as a kid, and I was a compulsive confessor, mm. and still am in a way. I compulsively get things off my chest, mm. and 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 the need to get things off my chest, like something that I've said that seems wrong or that feels wrong. 
I feel that very keenly now. And I, my friends will tell you that I just like say all sorts of useless shit that I think, I think I might've offended somebody. So I have to tell them about, it. I like, I think I might've hurt someone. I have to talk about it. And most of my friends are just like, no, I, I was not even aware of that. So there's still a confessional impulse in me, which yes. absolutely comes from Christianity, but some of the basic tenets just made no sense to me. As a child, I, I couldn't, I couldn't accept them, but I also couldn't accept that there was no God. I was never willing and have never been willing to say, there is no God. I believe this 100%. So along the way, I developed communities because as anyone who's, who's interested in, in church will tell you, it's, it's really all about the people. I mean, it's about a bond with God, but it's also about the people. And especially in Chicago, I found a group of people that floored me. These were some of the best educated, most verbally articulate people I'd ever met in my entire life, many of whom were agnostic or even atheist, but came to this church because it was a place of deep exploration. And at this church and through people I subsequently met interconnected with this particular church, I entered into a series of ongoing, deep, fraught, meaningful conversations with people who became dear friends, uh, especially a bunch of Episcopal priests who I'm still very good friends with, um, a number of boyfriends who I had like ongoing, really important conversations with. And basically the upshot of this for me, bearing in mind my skepticism, but also bearing in mind this thing that I can't deny about being moved by music in the context of, of ceremony these things add up to one thing for me, which is like the sort of undeniable core of, of what I, I'm not even sure what I, if, if it's what I believe, but it's what I feel, which is that there is a voice in me that feels both like me and feels not like me, and which is most easily described as a conscience. And I have an ongoing consultation with my conscience. And it instructs me in a way that only things and people and systems of belief outside of you can really instruct you, like reveal things to you that don't feel like they come from inside of my own head. And in consultation with this conscience, I am able to improve. I am able to recognize things that I inherently know but have trouble sort of cognitively coming to terms with. And this conscience is my spiritual guide today. I do not self-describe as a Catholic today. I do not self-describe as religious, but I am not someone who is willing to say that there is no God. And I know that I have an ongoing relationship with this inner voice that is real and that I cannot regard as wholly originating from myself. <laughs> Major. That's powerful. <laughs> and that is a beautiful place to hang up the first segment. So we'll okay. take a tiny break and we'll be right back. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back with Majel, 
And Major, one thing that really struck me, because it's, it's different from the way I was raised, it seems like your parents are and were very progressive for religious people in a conservative town like Omaha, Nebraska. And it seems like it left you in a place where you were free to express or at least feel without sort of guilt your, your, your skepticism. And yet at the same time, you've been able to keep the formal aspect of religion to some extent close to you. And I'm really interested in that because that's very different from my understanding. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly how you picked up on, on that aspect of the parenting I received, but that is absolutely the case. My parents are the, some of the most non-judgmental, tolerant, open-minded people I know. And especially for Nebraska, that was rare. It was really rare. I feel very, very fortunate in that. I would also say that my parents' own views of God are something of a mystery to me. Mm. Um, there has been some alcoholism in my family. And as a consequence, my dad goes to Al-Anon more often than he goes to church. But Al-Anon, as you probably know, has spirituality and a higher power at its very core. Mm -hmm. And my father's ability to give things over to this notion of a higher power has been completely transformative for him. But I do not know my father's concept of God, because that is not something that I think he's comfortable talking about. And it's also something I'm not really sure about in my mother. My mom um, has a little bit of a, a difficulty going to this place. And I've, I've inquired before. I want to know about my mom's relationship to God and my mom's relationship to prayer. And she can't quite articulate it. The church is the centerpiece of my mom's life. Um, she's, a, she's a church musician. She plays for masses at multiple churches. She directs different choirs. She's part of different choirs. She plays piano. She sings. She directs children. It's a massive um, and important aspect of life for her. But I do not actually have a clear sense of the depth of her belief, just to put it really simply. So that it's interesting that I, I do experience this high degree of permissiveness from them. But at the same time, I actually don't have much concrete mm. detail on what they themselves believe, which I think is interesting. One of the things that really strikes me is when we sing in church, we are agreeing to some extent in expressing an affirmation of the divine in our lives. But we don't have to articulate in the song what it is that we each believe and then therefore categorize ourselves as one or another. And this thing I, that just really struck me is that you still go home when you see your mother, you still sing with her, you still play with her. And it just feels so potent to me that that's such a beautiful way to connect with your mother and that you can share in the divine together without having to talk about it. Yeah. I, I, the importance of music for me is that, and I think you will appreciate this, Nick, as a person of the theater, music is also dramatic. It gives us access to like another dimension. And the reason that music is important in the context of God is that it creates a perceivable thing that is not visual, but still has drama. It like, it actualizes some dimension that we otherwise don't have 
access to. I don't know if this makes sense, but like it's it's this dimension of wonder and like a palpable sense of like something living on top of your chest mm. while you hear it. And and I can't get that just from words. I can't get that from conversation. I can't get that from ritual. I can't get that from incense or communion, but I can get it from music. It's not akin to a person in the room, but it is akin to a kind of a presence. And that's why I use this this word theater or drama. It's like it's like, you know, when you listen to a podcast, it has a lot of music, like something like actually Radio Lab. Mm. <laughs> Radio Lab uses sound to illustrate something that they can't just do with words. Mm. Like when they add music, it helps us visualize it illustrates in a way that mere words can't illustrate and music does that for god so for me music has this theatrical dimension and always has and i am a big appreciator of music as theater and theater as music like i don't i don't really do one without the other it's really important that they both be there for me and when i perform in church with my mom it's like I'm not just observing cold tenets or dryly reciting things that I may or may not believe. But when I sing, I am with my mom, especially bringing a thing into the room, a presence into the room and like an actualization, not of being, but of like, I keep using this word dimension because I don't know how else to say it brings something that wasn't there into the room, into the room. No, I think it makes sense. I think it makes yeah. sense. I'm following. I I so enjoy having access to other people's ways of, of how they experience that in the world. And I mm. appreciate your bi- ability to, to crystallize that for me. I want to get back to some just kind of basic things. Um, you have a couple of brothers. Do they share any of this with you? Do they have musical acumen? Do they, um, or did they take a different path than you? Yeah, very much so. Um, they are both musically very gifted. Um, and one of them is, um, is a sound engineer. He has very recently gone back to the church after being educated at, um, Creighton Prep where you were. Oh yeah. And I think that even though Prep was like kind of a catastrophe for both of my brothers, really. The Latin program gave them a sense of respect and awe for religion that at least this one brother has ultimately come back to. Um, We're all brainiacs in my family. Uh, Everyone likes to out-argue one another in Mm -hmm. pursuit of making a point. And, (laughs) you know, like intellectual concerns are, you know, part of the, the sort of... We're always, we're just always trying to be smarter than each other, basically. Um, and so I think, you know, religion poses a problem for folks who, who need to be able to do that, who need to be able to be intellectual in the context of religion. It's much easier to like become Buddhist because there is such a, um, a high level of inquiry and philosophy that is present in Buddhism. Christianity, it's harder to find that. But the Jesuits very often have this. The Jesuits are very often some of the most freaking educated people that you're going to meet. And Mm. in the Latin program um, at PrEP, one of my brothers, I think this was his first experience of like, wait, there are spiritual people out there who I can talk to, who can meet me at my level of need and who can have this deep of a conversation with me. And he, this particular brother, ultimately found a pastor 
who um, was able to lure him back into the kind of thought process that he needed to meet Christianity on its own terms. And he is now ardent in, in his belief of Christ. He, um, he has a family. He does um, <laughs> sound and music for, for the church that he attends. And I can't be super specific because he and I are not terribly in touch. Our family our family does best at a distance. Um, we we tend to we tend to have meltdowns when people are too close. So like texting works really well for my family. <laughs> but I I do know how important this revelation has been for my brother. And while I am somewhat surprised by the sudden turn in direction, it's just uh, that is who he has become in his adulthood. Um, my my other brother, I'm pretty sure is an atheist. I, I don't believe that I've ever had a conversation with him about the church. My mom is the epicenter of the family. Everyone can get along with mom, but then there are other combinations that don't work so well. So like I, I am a relentless caretaker of my mom and I, I will go home for every holiday and I will always be with her. And our, our trips to church are like a really integral, important part of that relationship. Um, but the rest of my family is, is fragmented and, we, and our relationships are delicate. I think that as we get older, they get a little bit better do you feel, hmm, this is a bit macabre, but <laughs> when, when your parents die, do you feel like you'll try to take on your mother's position as being somewhat of an epicenter? Or do you think that the distance will just grow further apart? Wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, this is a, this is an unrelated thing, but I, I have a, I have a somewhat masculine personality by which I mean, I am fearful of caretaking and fearful of feminine qualities that are taken as soft, um, or squishy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know at what point in my life I, I, I developed that, but it is something of a reaction against the way that I perceive my mom to be. And through no fault of her own, I just don't like to observe my mother in service positions. And she is a woman who serves. It's really, it's what she does. She mm-hmm. does that at church. She does it in the context of her larger family. She's constantly caretaking for older people who she has power of attorney over. Like there are a number of people and institutions and organizations that my mom serves. And I don't like the feeling of seeing her do this without proper thanks and appreciation. I really hate it. It really irritates me. And, and somehow at some point, I mean, also this happened to me when I was in Catholic high school, like, you know, where it became cool to grow the hair on your legs and it became cool to be outspoken and have a weird haircut or to like, grow out your armpit hair or to like not tuck in your shirt. Totally it developed, remember that. <laughs> it definitely developed this sense of like cool and power as a woman are in the opposite of womanly characteristics. So all this is to say, when you say, well, you take on your mother's role internally, I'm thinking, well, I would have to like really, I would really have to bleach out and reverse all these instincts in me 
to not be a caretaker, to not be a uniter, but to rather be an isolated individual on my own damn path, which is what I am. So realistically, would I become my mom? I don't think I can. I don't think I have a history with my brothers that allows for the kind of disclosure that they feel that they can share um, with my mom. I do think my dad and I have a very strong bond, but because of my dad's investment in Al-Anon and his renewed sense of what it means to take care of himself, I think he and I have uh, lost something of our closeness. So I'm going to go with no. (laughs) (laughs) That seems right. But I appreciate your thought, uh, the deep reflection you did on it, because Forgive me if I'm making something melodramatic that isn't, but it it's it speaks somewhat, I think, to the love of your mother and mm. maybe the loss that she might, or maybe the loss you would imagine she might perceive if there's no one there to take her position when yeah. she's gone. She is irreplaceable. And I actually negatively fantasize and and uh, her death all the time, and I and I prepare for it all the time because mm-hmm. I think that it will rock me. I think it will really tear. I I feel I feel such tremendous love from my mom and from my dad. I have so much support from them. They believe in me no matter how bizarre the art I am producing is. They will fly to the ends of the earth. Even now, I am 42 and my parents will just get on a plane and fly and come see me in some strange opera that I'm putting on or some strange rock show. (laughs) That's wonderful. They are support without boundaries. And when, when my mom goes, I do wonder whether some of the freedom I feel because of that parental love will cause me to shrivel a little bit. I wonder if I will have the same sense of just like going out there and doing whatever I want to do because I have always enjoyed this this trampoline under me. Like I I can be in free fall because I know that their their unconditional love and support is there for me and and I I do think the death of my mother will I think it will rock me and I'm I'm it's, it's it's an event that I that I I I think about pretty actively. My mother, on the other hand, actively imagines her own funeral. My mother has no uh, worry about death, no fear of death. Oh, wow. She likes to talk to me about the music that she would like me to program at her funeral, um, the sorts of things that she would like to have there, and the sorts of people that she would and wouldn't like to have there. Oh, that's great. And I can't I can't talk to her about it, but I do I do find it pretty amazing that she has such an open-ended embrace of her own mortality, which actually makes me want to revise what I said earlier about her relationship to God. I, I can't imagine that if she didn't believe in God, she could possibly feel that way about death. That's beautiful, Majel. Thank you for sharing those <laughs> insights. You know what, Majel? We're going to take another break right now. Okay. We're going to get back. We have one segment left. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all in a minute. All right, we're back with our last segment with Majel. Majel, off mic, we've talked a couple times about 
how impactful some of these relationships have been in your life. And I haven't heard really anything about it. So would you mind just kind of opening up that story, that journey and what those relationships have meant to you? Yeah. I mean, I am at a period right now where I have just emerged from the most impactful relationship of my life, but also the hardest relationship of my life and the the sort of the hardest one wisdom in the <laughs> in the mm. wake of it. I also just I have to circle back to something that you said during the break, Nick, because it reminded me of this tenet that I carried around with me for these last like basically seven years. I try to ask myself every day, if I died tomorrow, what would I wish? I had done today. And it doesn't unfortunately have like the utterly transformative impact that it should. Because like if I actually knew I was gonna die tomorrow, I would probably like go naked into the ocean and like scream and shout. I like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that this like the presence of 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 the imminence of death is like a, a really interesting <sighs> teacher. Mm. And uh, I I want to maybe like come back to that in a second, but so relationships. Sure. Um, I started a professorship at, at um, University of California, Berkeley in 2013. And it was the best and coolest job I'd ever been offered in my life. And there was no way I was going to turn it down, but I didn't want it. Hmm. I had already decided when I finished my PhD that I did not want to become a professor because I wanted to be an artist. And I knew that in my heart. And I knew somehow abstractly or thought that I knew that I could do it too. But I took this job anyway, because it was like way too cool <laughs> to pass it up. And I was a total sucker for cool. And <laughs> the minute I got to Berkeley, I also met this person who uh, became my partner for the next almost eight years. Oh, wow. um, and he's also a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a pretty prominent, well-known person. And so he and I tended to keep our relationship in the dark. And I, I won't use his name here, but suffice it to say that he might be a name that's known to some of, of your listeners. The next period of my life, though, became really, really difficult. Because on one hand, I was repressing a thing that I knew at the expense of something that was certain. I had health care. I had income. I had a cool place to live and a sort of like cool thing to put on my pedigree, like professor at Berkeley. Cool. <laughs> um, you know, I've arrived, but I was dying on the inside. Yeah. I mean, I, one thing I, I don't want to derail you, but one thing that just screaming at me is that I have a lot of friends that are in academia that mm. have doctorates and the competition in that field is immense. And you must have almost felt some sense of like, wow, there's so many other people I know that would kill for this position. Yeah. How can I turn it down? Well, for sure. There's also just this sense of like, well, what do I even know anyway? Mm. I, I'm just a human being on this planet. How do I really know that I won't be utterly transformed by this? How do I really know that I won't love it? And if I say no to something, I immediately close the door. And I'm I'm not much of a door closer. I'm mm. a door opener. And and the problem with that is that I always have 22 doors open, <laughs> which isn't, you know, a good way to live either. But so I said yes to this job and I opened the door to a relationship 
and, you know, moved into my partner's house and, and promptly began to shrivel <laughs> and wow. die because I was okay at the work. I'm, you know, I'm, I can plausibly carry it off. I can do the things that are required and I can even find some enjoyment in it. But if you are blessed enough to know that you have a thing that you would like to be doing on this earth, that you have a, a, an insane passion for, and you're not doing it, like, no, <laughs> there's no excuse for that. Because some people aren't fortunate enough to have a passion and to know what they would like to be doing. I did. But it took me the entire, the entirety of like the next two years of my life to finally grow a pair and say, okay, I'm going to leave academia. But I didn't do it in the right way. I, I felt this, you know, surge of courage. I was going to finally leave, but I hadn't built any bridges professionally that were going to allow me a soft landing. I just landed at rock bottom. And this was 2015. This was the summer of 2015. Did you find encouragement in your relationship? Because one thing I'm, I'm interested for you to track with me here is this point, this decision comes three years into an eight-year relationship with someone who's still yeah. teaching at Berkeley. Yeah. I, I'm trying, I, I'm curious to know, was this person encouraging you to follow your dreams or was this person encouraging you to be like, you can do your dreams on the side while you continue to be a professor because it's, I'm interested to know you still linger in this relationship for five years while you're hitting rock bottom. Right. I mean, I will say he, he is probably still my biggest fan. Well, oh, okay, next to my great. mom. <laughs> and, and, and totally thought it was like this wild, courageous act of me and thought I had an incredible voice and wanted to see what I would do with it. The problem was I then entered into a pretty bad, what I now recognize as like kind of a depression. I didn't at the time, but I, I, I do think of it now as kind of a depression between 2015 and basically the end of COVID. And it only got worse. And there were many, 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 many factors. One was that I tried a lot of things. I tried to start an ensemble. I tried to curate a series. I tried to, you know, this is me opening door after door after door after door. I flew back and forth between California and New York, sometimes two to three times a month, because mm. if there was any opportunity at all, I would take it no matter how absurd, no matter how ill-fitting. I was just throwing myself at anything in an effort to like, figure out this art thing. And as anyone who is 22 and has just moved to LA knows, there is a period that is a very long protracted period sometimes where you are waiting tables and you do not know that your career is ever going to take off. And we can accept that when we're 22 because you don't know any other life. But I was 35 and this became humiliating, deeply frustrating and pretty confusing because I had to ask myself all the time, am I actually good enough? Can I do this? And I became smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less and less self-assured and more and more frustrated. And this obviously contributed to the unraveling of a relationship that probably ultimately unraveled for other reasons. But surely my conflict my inner conflict between who I thought I was, who I felt myself to be, and who I was actually putting out into the world 
grew greater and greater and greater and like just boggled my mind. And this gap is like the thing that I have finally managed to close. And I didn't even really do it consciously. I don't know how it happened. But I have in the last six months, largely since COVID opened up, been able to finally unite my self-concept of who I am with who I actually am in the world. And I am literally over the moon every day on an ongoing way. Part of it had to do with leaving a relationship that ultimately over time became, it became unhealthy for a lot of different reasons. But one is that my sort of atrophy as a person got built into this thing. You know how when you, Nick, when you go home for Thanksgiving, you become your like eight-year-old self again. There's no escaping it. In the context of your family, you just are this kid, this like dumb kid or Mm -hmm. like the fretful kid or the like, you know, the kid who always rags on his parents or the kid who's the class clown or whatever the like the kid self of you is. It's like this inescapable fact of your relationship with your family that you are trapped forever in this body. (laughs) And the same thing can happen in an adult relationship. I had become this like frustrated, small, estranged person. Like even from myself, I was estranged. And um, when I was able to finally leave the relationship, I was able to completely reinvent myself. And the the effect of this was like immediate and totalizing. And I don't even just mean psychically, I mean physically too. This is a little, it might seem like a am diverging, but this is actually on, uh, on topic. No, I'm, I'm following. Please continue. I, my entire life, I don't know if you remember this about me in high school, but I was always a little bit chubby. Just a little bit chubby. I'm not sure I would have thought of that. Uh, I, I do remember your curls. Uh, I remember that <laughs> your hair was quite long and curly, but I don't remember you being chubby. But but anyway, go on. Well, so anyway, part of this like this gap between the person you feel yourself to be and the person that you are in the world, this gap for me in part was expressed on a very physical level. I never felt myself to be in concert with my body. I always felt a little bit overweight and I couldn't do anything about it. I was a fanatic about working out. I was a fanatic about like trying different eating styles and being super, super, super religious about this. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't like really budge where I was. In the last six months, I suddenly just like dropped 11 or 12 pounds and I wasn't even trying. And I think that (laughs) this is just, it's a very stupid example of like this really profound revelation, which was like, I am finally doing the thing that I want to be doing on a number of levels. I haven't really described yet, but the effect on my, my psyche, my psychology, my, my body has been freaking profound. And it just came from finally getting to do the thing that I had been trying and trying and trying to do, but it also had to just do with kind of like a letting go. Um, tell me if I'm like getting wild. No, well, around. I do want to ask kind of a basic question here, and this is really sort of yeah. weird, but since you opened the door, it's it's not like, it's not a dietary question, but it's a question about habit. 
because you were depressed at times, what would you turn to? Would you turn to having a drink or maybe an extra drink? Would you turn to going and eating something with a friend that felt, you know, those are the things that keep weight on, right? And so mm. did you turn to things like that as ways to, as a lot of people do, as ways to give you momentary satisfaction? Not those things, but what I turned to was ritual and control and exacting regulation over every aspect of my life. And this is why the relationship became a prison mm. because my partner does this as well. Mm. We were on a crazy schedule basically where we would like wake up at a specified time and then take exactly 20 minutes for coffee and then go to the gym and then spend exactly like an hour and 10 minutes at the gym and then there would be a scheduled call and like the entire day was this series of highly regulated actions including like waking up at bedtime and we would only watch like 30 minutes of Netflix at night because otherwise that would be a way it was the most controlling environment that I have ever existed in and I understand why I created it. I created it so that I would excel. I created a highly regulated environment so that I could really focus on what I was doing and never lose a minute and never take a break because otherwise, you know, I wasn't trying my hardest. But instead, what happened is I created a jail inside of which I couldn't possibly develop and I couldn't possibly let go. So I had all this like obsessive compulsive structure and no sense of freedom no sense of joy, no sense of relaxation, and no sense of self. And when I left the confines of this relationship that my partner and I mutually created together, we created this prison ourselves, I suddenly experienced a different version of me entirely, a different version of me that was open to chaos. I started living in my bandmate's basement. Mm. And there are like 12 different people living in this house. They all have different schedules. The walls are incredibly permeable. Like <laughs> there are cats and like cat pee and cat shit everywhere. And there's like all these people and like some of them get up super early in the morning and some of them are up until two or three at night and they play loud music. And I just had to exist in this environment. And I was fine. Wow. And there were all these other examples. So, you know, my bandmate and I also have created this band together that is like highly unregulated. It's like metal meets Enya. It's like, I mean, it's really hard to describe the kind of stuff we do, but it's highly embodied. I lose my voice all the time. I have mm. learned to shred and to scream and to jump up and down and to find a kind of bodily freedom that I have never had in a classical environment where you're standing on stage and reading a score and behaving yourself and then the lights go up and the lights go down and everyone applauds. Like This is the exact opposite. Wow. The point of this band is to induce frenzy in an audience. And I have to be the leader of that frenzy so that the band has also been this incredible, incredible outlet for me. And we just went on tour where... Literally everything that could possibly have gone wrong went wrong. Like United refused to fly our, our giant equipment and then they broke half of it and we had to oh, fix it before the show. And then like gosh. the car broke down and then, you know, this like homeless person like stole a bunch of stuff from our hotel room. Oh, and no. Like, but every single day, it was the best day of my life. Right. Because I couldn't predict what was going to happen. I, I had no idea like what was coming. And it was this sense of like incredible release in the possibility of not knowing. And I have found 
so much joy in this. It's absolutely blown me away. I'd never, I never would have believed it was possible for me to feel this way. And now I, I chase this feeling every day. And not to, not to harp on this aspect, but the mind body relationship, just your sense of relaxation, your sense of galvanized purpose, your sense of self having come to a freer place to a, to fruition in some sense has allowed you to achieve some of these things without even trying. Whereas before you were fixated on them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Before I thought I can only exist in this highly routinized environment. I, I have to get this much sleep and I have to watch out for my health and I, I have to do this and this and this for my career. And in throwing literally all of that away, I have instead been gifted this new and unpredictable world in which I am a person who can deal with <laughs> unexpected stuff. I am a person who can deal with hardship. I am a person who can deal with chaos and find glee in it. And the change in my life has been absolutely profound. I know I never run into anyone without them saying, Majel, you seem like a different person. Mm. I mean, I don't need that external validation, but it also is really cool. And I'm like, oh, cool. It's not just that I feel this way. It's that it really is this mm. way. And this feels like, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, to force this conversation into a, a mold, but like, this is a freaking spiritual journey the likes of which I have never experienced because it is about a leap of faith. It's about giving up control. It's about saying, I cannot do this on my own. It's about all these things that are such stupid truisms. And like on a, you know, on a Christian path to finding God, you are told to like basically stop thinking so much, stop worrying so much, stop trying to control things. And, and the gift when you give up control will be that you will actually find the things that you want. But like, how do we get there? And I feel, I just feel so freaking blessed to have made this discovery. I, I didn't intend it. I didn't will it. And that's why it's so special to me. It actually just happened. And, and the scary part right now, Nick, is like, I actually feel like I have to accept in a sort of Buddhist resignation sort of way, that it also could be taken away. Mm. It could also just, it could disappear. My, my, my bandmate could get run over by a truck. <laughs> or I, you know, mm. I don't know. I, I, I become depressed again and I, I can't control that. And I, I can't cling to it. I can't protect this feeling. I have to continue to just live in this heedless way where I wake up every morning and just give thanks for the freaking blessing of, of what this feels like. Oh, that's such a, a wonderful, wonderful explanation and, and share about where you're at and how you've gotten there. And I just so appreciate it. That's great. Majel, it has been such a joy. And I will say, this is what I used to say in the first season all the time. And I, I mentioned to you that I haven't recorded an episode of this in a year. I thought I would get back to this sooner. But for me, I find such a palpable presence of what I feel is a divine feeling in my life when someone 
enters into a space like this and shares so openly and allows me to listen intently to their life and their journey, I just get so much from it. And I feel that right now. I'm feeling, I just feel so excited for you. And um, I'm so grateful for the energy you shared with me in this conversation. It was really nice being in touch with you. Thank you, Nick. I, I love that you said all that. And I really, uh, I mean, there's something really special about being able to externalize thought with another person that you care about because it's not really real until you say it, you know, mm. the other person makes it real. Um, so thank you for doing that. But I, I actually have to, I have to ask you a question before we go. Can I do that? Oh, sure. Yeah. I have this memory that I need you to confirm. <laughs> Okay. The memory, the memory it's is... the first time I've become nervous in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the memory is I learned to drive before you because I'm older than you. Yeah, by and one year. You're one year older. We Oh, it's only one year? Oh, I imagine it was like two. Okay, yeah. so the memory is we are in my car and I'm driving and we are driving west on Dodge Street in Omaha. And I think that we were going to a prom, but that wouldn't make sense because no, the only prom that would be west on Dodge would be like Mount Michael, which I'm pretty like, <laughs> so, but okay. So my memory is that we're going to prom, which you just confirmed, but then we were talking about something in the car and it was such a, like a heartfelt or thoughtful or like, I don't know, deep conversation for me at least that I had apparently slowed to like, a rate of like 35 miles an hour as we were driving down Dodge, which in general clarification, Dodge is like, it's like a highway. Yeah. So we probably should have been going like minimum of 60 and I was going like 35 and you finally burst into laughter and you said, Majel, I just really, I don't mean to interrupt your thought process right now, but I need to let you know that you're driving 35 miles an hour. Do you have any recollection of this? Okay, so that is hilarious. I <laughs> I want you to know that recently my parents sent me 14 cardboard boxes of my youth out to me in Whoa. LA. And I went through all this and I found a picture of you and I on my porch in my huh. parents' old home, which would have been huh. further west of where you lived. And we went to uh, a prom or or something. I don't remember which one it was. It was either homecoming or prom. So I do have that picture. So that's how wow. I can confirm that. But I I don't have the uh, memory of that, but I love that you do. And it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. I mean, you know, the, everything else is making sense, but that is really <laughs> wonderful. So in my mind, we can say that we were driving out to meet my parents, take a picture, and then go to prom. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But we were having some sort of really deep conversation. Yeah, well, it doesn't <laughs> surprise me. It's nice that we get to to bookend that conversation from many years right. ago with this one now. Um, Majel, don't go anywhere. Let me say goodbye to the show, but then just hang on for a second, okay? Don't hang up. Okay. All right, everybody. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>